just as soon as your mind has exited the swirling splendiferousness of an intellectual smorgasbord, you now find yourself inescapably gravitating back to the Phantasmagorical Think Tank. Oh, well, hello there, listener. I see you've joined us uh, for one more deep dive into Phantasmagoria. Tell me, Matt, what is on the menu for today? First, we will delve into the supernatural world with Ouija boards. Then we will be looking in a philosophical sense at the paradox of the ravens. Mm, I'm confused already. And thirdly, we will be talking about metapolitics. What's that, Scott? Well, keep listening and find out. Let's get started. First, Ouija boards. Fact or fiction? So I suppose we can start this section by talking about uh, what the pitch of a Ouija board is, what it purportedly does, uh, and then afterwards go into more of the science behind it and say what's really going on, what's really at work. So tell me, Matt, what exactly is a Ouija board? And before that, how do you spell Ouija board? Ouija board. O-U-I-J-A board. You sure it's not Ouija board? Well, it depends on your branding, but sometimes it'll be called a Ouija board. Uh, Same diff. You say tomato, I say potato. It's the same thing. So tell me, what does a Ouija board purportedly do? Supposedly, a Ouija board allows one to communicate with the dead through supernatural forces where they will touch a thing called a planchette, which is basically a, I want to say, puck with a circle in it. That's a suitable description, usually in the shape of a spade like you might see on a deck of cards. The planchette is placed on a board. The board has alphabetical letters, a yes, no, and typically a goodbye. Occasionally the word hello, too. Spooky. And... Many people will go around holding onto the planchette, putting a finger or two on it, and the planchette will mysteriously move via the supernatural forces due to the people they are talking to, such as an undead ghost, and will communicate with the ghost via that board. How scintillatingly terrifying. The modern form of the Ouija board uh, in America dates back to the Reconstruction era, post-Civil War, Uh, But it didn't really become widely popular until around the turn of the century during the Houdini era. And I mention Houdini because he was famous at the time for refuting the supernatural claims associated with it and giving uh, scientific explanations to it. And I should also point out that when it was first uh, introduced into American culture, it started out more as a childhood toy, as a talking board. Like, hey, look at this cool little parlor trick. It's like the board's talking to you. It says hello and goodbye to you. Um, But again, it wasn't until the Houdini era that people started, that advertising companies really started hammering home the claim that, no, this is a supernatural thing. This communicates to ghosts and the dead. So, listeners, over Halloween weekend, we decided to be scientists about this and experiment with the Ouija board ourselves. Tell me, Matt, about our experience with that. Well, we tried twice. We had around, I'd say, six people both times. 
Uh, that sounds right. We thought more people would make it a better experience. We, as always, turned off the lights to set the spooky mood. Except for one naked light bulb hanging from the ceiling as it flickered in the moonless fog. And we had everybody put one or two fingers on it. On the planchette, that is. And we moved the planchette. Supposedly the first time, uh, it didn't. It didn't move. It, the first time was quite a letdown. <laughs> uh, the second time, a little spookier, we met... Oh, what was the ghost's name? Valerie? Yes, you see, we asked uh, how many people are in this room. There were six humans... But the planchette landed on eight. So, of course, the only scientific explanation is that there were two ghosts in the room. And so we ask, well, what is your name? And it landed on V, which stands for... Valerie. Ooh. No other name starts with V. And so we continued by asking, what's the name of the other person in the room? And the answer was... Which we took to mean T. Revere, an ancestor of Paul Revere? I think so. Part Thomas, part Revere, abbreviates his name to T. Revere. Even though he spells it T. Revere. (laughs) So I have to say our second experience with the Ouija board was actually really fun. Uh, At some points it really did feel as if the planchette was indeed moving itself, leading us rather than we leading it. And we got to play around asking funny questions such as uh, who will die first among uh, this group and at what age? Who's most likely to get arrested? Uh, Fun little astrological questions, I guess you could say, like that. So now that we've described our anecdotal experience, let's get into more hard science. What's really going on? Are we, is a supernatural ghost named Valerie and Freyrovra really leading us around? No. The answer is the idiomotor effect. The idiomotor effect? I have a thing or two to say about that. So uh, the idiomotor effect or the idiomotor response is this subconscious phenomenon where when the brain pictures movement, it will enact that movement even unconsciously. Uh, For example, if I imagine myself reaching for a glass of water, my hand will do that. And you do this every day on a daily basis without even realizing it. Because surely, Matt, you'd agree uh, when you think, I'm going to reach out and like press the power button, you don't think, all right, hand, let's move. Your, your hand just does it. Actually, another thing, I also sometimes find myself when I'm just having a conversation with someone in my head of like, oh, yeah, this is how this conversation's going to go. I sometimes realize I'm moving my hands in public and I think, I did not mean to be doing that in real life. I feel you. Apparently, I mouth words uh, when I'm not speaking all the time, according to my mother. My mom says the same thing. She'll look at me in the car and say, Matt, what are you saying? (laughs) And so uh, we experience this on a day-to-day basis. But when there are, say, six people all touching the planchette, not only is the idiomotor response uh, magnified, but there creates a feedback loop where if one person tinyly nudges it the other six people will think oh the planchette is moving i better move my finger in the direction of its momentum and so those six people without realizing it push it further so the first person thinks oh wow it it started itself i better continue go with the flow and thus creates a feedback loop 
Are there any other situations that kind of have this feedback loop? Uh, I've had a similar experience. There's this fun game where there are five or six people who are all touching a hula hoop, and they can only touch it with the underside of their index finger and nothing else. Not two fingers, uh, not the thumb, index, underside only. And the objective of the game is to start with the hula hoop about five feet in the air and bring it down onto the ground safely. But all five or six fingers need to be on it at the same time. And if one person removes their finger or goes faster than the others, then they have to start over. And so the phenomenon that you find is that everybody really, really doesn't want to move their finger down faster than they do. And so they overcorrect and they push their finger upward. And so thus it creates a feedback loop where everyone else thinks, oh, no, the hula hoop is going upward. I better move my finger upward, too. And so even when all six people consciously want the hula hoop to go down, you find the hula hoop starts going up as if there's some invisible phantom pushing it when, in fact, there's nothing supernatural about it. It's the same thing with the Ouija board. I've never heard about that game before, actually. That's really cool. Here, let's play it right now. Hold on one second. All right, so we're recording this 17 hours after what we just recorded. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding about that one. Uh, Matt, do you have any more thoughts? Um, on the idiomotor effect? Not particularly. On Ouija boards, yes. <laughs> well said. Another scientific thing that makes people think it's a supernatural force rather than a scientific explanation is confirmation bias. Mm, tell me about that. Confirmation bias is when you believe something already, whether like very consciously or somewhat subconsciously, and then you read or have evidence towards that bias or towards your already established belief, and then you take that as full-fledged, overvalued support of that belief. So when you somewhat think that, oh, it's a supernatural force, and then suddenly it answers maybe a yes or no question correctly, even though it's a 50-50 chance, and you're moving it via the idiomotor effect, you think, oh, it's a supernatural force. It's true, and we should probably point out that confirmation bias affects everybody. Uh, you're not necessarily stupid for falling victim to it. I fall victim to it all the time. Um, confirmation bias can also be found a lot in politics, uh, where if they read, say, a news article that agrees with their opinion, you or anyone is more likely to think that that website is credible, while if they read an article that disagrees with their opinion, uh, the first intuitive innate thought is, oh, that this website must just be nonsense. Whoever wrote that must have no credibility. So, Scott, what do you think about confirmation bias in terms of the Ouija board, whether like what it has to say about people's predisposed beliefs of it? Mm, that's a very good question. So uh, the phenomenon is that, say, if you're doing a Ouija board for an hour, maybe uh, more than one session over the course of a few weeks, all the answers that are either incorrect or nonsense, uh, we as humans tend to just cast it off or quickly forget about it while the few times when it just so happens the Ouija board gives a correct answer or a sensical answer. Side note, oddly enough, nonsensical is a word, but sensical isn't. That uh, creates an emotional response within us, and we remember that, and we latch onto it. Uh, for example, when we said, uh, who will die first, and the letter landed on C, we all immediately turned towards Claire. And so that kind of humorous, fun experience uh, 
that was memorable, but all the times we said, like, what is your name? And it was V, then a string of random letters. We kind of slack that off just because we're humans and we do that. And another phenomenon that uh, makes the Ouija board appear more supernatural than it is is what's called leading questions. This is used a lot uh, by uh, not-so-legitimate lawyers where you have an answer to another question ingrained into the phrasing of the first question. For example, if I say, how many spirits are in this room, it seems inevitable that it will land on anything other than zero just by sheer chance. Uh, To give another example, if I said, Matt, have you gotten over your Hannah Montana addiction? No. Ah, so you're still addicted to Hannah Montana. So the point, of course, is that a, a certain bias or a certain statement was ingrained into the question that I asked, and so either way he answers, it still supports uh, my predetermined belief. Uh, don't worry, Matt, I did not think that you were addicted to Hannah Montana, but if you were, binge away. Never was and never will watch. <laughs> All right, so we got very derailed there. Let's go back to the science behind the Ouija board. So there are two scientific tests that you can do to show that it is, in fact, the humans moving the planchette and not ghosts moving the planchette. Tell me about those, Matt. First one is blindfolding. What happens when someone is blindfolded and cannot see the letters on the board, nor where they're moving it? Well, surely, if ghosts are moving the board, that wouldn't matter because they're not blindfolded and you'd get just normal answers, right? No. Well, yes, if ghosts were moving it, but in reality, no. In reality, you will get nonsense answers. Mm, what a shame. What's the second one, Scott? Uh, so the second phenomenon is that if you, say, have a deck of index cards or thin sheets of paper on top of the planchette, you would expect that if some sort of supernatural force was pushing the planchette and your fingers were merely following, that you would find that just by friction and forces, the index cards would begin to slant towards you uh, if the planchette was moving away. However, if the human was pushing uh, forward or exerting a force forward and the planchette was simply following, you'd find that the, the pile of index cards would begin slanting away from you if the planchette was moving away. And so when we test it, we find it's the latter, which suggests that humans, not some sort of supernatural force, is, in fact, pushing it. So, Matt, we've been saying some scientific facts uh, surrounding the Ouija board, but does this mean that Ouija boards aren't any fun? Does that mean that none of our listeners should buy a Ouija board? No, I mean, I had fun. We had fun when we did our Ouija board. It means that we're presenting a bunch of facts about the Ouija board that one may want to keep in mind if they are ever intimidated by it. I know a lot of friends, I had asked before whether they or not they would want to do a Ouija board, and their initial reactions are always no. So I'm not saying you have to get a Ouija board, but we're not necessarily saying to refrain from getting one, just saying there is some science behind it besides necessarily just supernatural forces. And I can say this, at least uh, personally and anecdotally, we had a lot of fun uh, letting our human biases get the better of us. Uh, seeing a V and making up a story about Valerie and asking, how did you die? And when we receive a G, uh, making up a story about how Valerie was beheaded by a guillotine, all of that was fun. 
uh, in a sense, it's sort of an improv game for us, crafting this tale and this ghost and this story uh, based on little hints like letters and such. I enjoyed it. So are we saying Valerie and other ghosts don't exist, Scott? It's not the job of the phantasmagorical think tank to urge you to believe anything or not believe anything. We simply state facts and our experiences and hope to educate you. So I think that pretty wholesomely and productively wraps up our conversation about Ouija boards. Wait a minute. What are your thoughts on it, Dave? Who's Dave? The guy standing right behind you. <gasps> now we will begin with our philosophical take. On today's conversation, the paradox of the ravens. Scott, what exactly is the paradox of the ravens? That is a fantastic question. So the paradox of the ravens is a logical paradox that was first proposed by Carl Gustav Hempel in the 1940s. And the idea behind it is that there are three seemingly plausible premises that lead to a seemingly implausible conclusion. And thus, that begs the question... Where exactly did we go wrong in our logic? Where's the error? So it takes a while to explain, and perhaps the best way to illustrate it is through question and answers. So I could start by saying, Matt, uh, would you agree with inductive reasoning that if I could say all nouns in this specific group, let's call them ends, if all these n's in a sample have a certain property p, that maybe we could hypothesize that all ends are p's, for example, we could say uh, every single giraffe in the zoo has spots. So maybe all giraffes have spots. And the more giraffes we find, the more evidence that gives for the hypothesis that all giraffes have spots. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that seems to be fair inductive reasoning. All right. So the second premise is the idea of equivalent expressions, that you can have two different sentences that essentially convey the exact same information, but just worded differently. Uh, for example, Scott is a male, or a male is what Scott is. Yeah, that makes sense. And to give a more complicated example, um, for listeners who don't know, Scripps College is an all-women's college near where we're recording in our dank grotto underground. And so, do you agree that the sentence is, all students who go to Scripps college are women, and the sentence, no men are students at Scripps College, are equivalent. Yes. All right. And one more thing about premise two. Would you agree that evidence of one is evidence of the other because they are equivalent statements? They're identical. Yes. So the third premise of the paradox of the ravens is, would you agree that the sentence, all ravens are black and all non-black things are non-raven, are equivalent expressions. I definitely have to think about the second one in the wording at first, but yeah. All right. That makes sense. Uh, at the risk of sounding patronizing, I'll just say it again slowly. All ravens are black. All non-black things are non-raven. If you say, hey, I have a white bird, and I say, well, I know it's not a raven, because all white things, all non-black things, are non-raven. You could also say the same for, say, an apple, though, right? An apple is a non-black thing. Hopefully, it's a red apple or green. So it will also be a non-raven. 
Yes, a red apple is a non-black, non-raven. Okay. And so this gives the conclusion, of course, that if you find evidence for all non-black things are non-raven, that provides evidence that all ravens are black, right? From premise two and three. Yes. So that leads to this seemingly bizarre conclusion. So I'm sitting in an office, say, and I say all of these non-black things in my office are non-raven. For example, I've got this brown desk and an orange pencil and a white sheet of paper. Therefore, I'm supporting the hypothesis that all non-black things are non-raven. And therefore, I'm supporting the hypothesis that all ravens are black. But that doesn't seem to make quite as much sense. It doesn't. Those two things seem very unrelated. How can it be that I'm deciding the color scheme of a species of birds without leaving my office, without looking at a single raven? How can it be? That is the paradox. So, listeners, you guys might want to take a moment to pause and mull this over for yourself. Think to yourself, where exactly is the flaw in logic? How can you resolve this intellectual riddle, this apparent paradox? And hopefully you're back by now. So, the best explanation that I can give is that the error comes between conclusion A that gathering evidence for all non-black things are non-ravens provides evidence for all ravens are black, and conclusion B, which is I'm sitting in my office proving that all ravens are black. And the reason why conclusion B doesn't follow from conclusion A is because I'm not using the scientific method correctly. I'm not using inductive reasoning correctly because, firstly, I already know that there aren't any ravens in my office and secondly, I know what the object is before I know the color. Uh, would you agree with that, Matt? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, hopefully there are no ravens in your office. <laughs> <laughs> well said. And, of course, you're going to be, when you look at something, rather than identifying it directly by, say, the orange pen on your desk, you're, you're, you know it's going to be a pen on your desk, rather than focusing on the fact that it's orange. Exactly. And I usually like to give this analogy called the analogy of the aviary. So imagine I'm an ornithologist and I go to this big dome or zoo or something similar. And I know that this aviary has at least one of every different species of bird. And this aviary has very thick foliage. And so I can't really make something out from a distance. I can't see what kind of species it is. I can only generally identify the color. So now imagine if every single time I see a blur of pink or white or green or blue, I get closer to it and I see what kind of species it is and I write it down in my journal. But every time I see the color black, I immediately close my eyes, put my hands over my face and wait for it to pass. So imagine at the end of the day, I've seen zero ravens and I can say to myself, I've seen a pink flamingo, I've seen a red macaw, I've seen a sage hen i have seen a sage hen but in spite of all that i haven't seen any ravens in that case i could say well maybe all the non-black things are non-raven because maybe i've been closing my eyes every single time a raven comes by because all the ravens are black so in that situation you totally could say all non-black things are non-raven and therefore all ravens are black, because I don't have that 
innate prior knowledge that I have in my office. So it's sort of like the order of the things that you say it in, like all non-black things are non-raven rather than all non-raven things are non-black. Even though that wouldn't make sense, it's still that you're looking at the color first rather than the subject, which yep. is how the sentence itself is phrased. So that is the main explanation to the paradox of the ravens. It's not a truly logical paradox the way things like this statement is false is. It's just made in a very subtle error in logic that we can prove to be as such. But tell me, Matt, are there any more subtle criticisms of it other than the main explanation? Yeah, one is the quantity of evidence proving the statement. You see, in the world, there are only a finite amount of ravens, clearly. And in the universe, assuming the universe is infinite, that would mean that there are an infinite amount of things that are non-raven and theoretically infinite amount of things that are non-black and even with a finite universe you could still say like this one atom is a thing but these two atoms are a different thing and these three atoms are still a third and you could make some unimaginably high amount of combinations of things and those things put together all assuming that they're non-raven and non-black to contribute as evidence to the idea that or to the conclusion that all non-black things are non-ravens, thus all ravens are black. So it seems like what you're saying is that there's a finite amount of ravens, but there's an arbitrarily high, if not infinite, amount of non-ravens. Is that what you're saying? And if so, what follows from that? If so, it's saying that every piece of evidence is... Well, yes, that is what I'm saying. And if so, it's saying that every piece of evidence is only one of, say, an infinite amount of pieces or a ridiculously high finite amount of pieces in comparison to the pieces of evidence that you would need to say to look at a raven and say this raven is black and a finite number divided by infinity is theoretically it's zero i agree and so by that logic even if you do have a thousand non-black non-raven things in essence uh you are you are arguably still giving only zero evidence Rather than if you were to look at the ravens themselves, which have a finite set, and you look at, say, a thousand of the finite set of, let's theoretically say there were only 7,000 ravens, because global warming may or may not exist. <laughs> 47,000 ravens. <laughs> then you would actually have some quantitative amount of evidence to say, like, oh, I can tell, like, at least this proportion of ravens will follow suit out of the sample or out of the population, assuming that you're looking at it from because the population itself is finite. Although that does pose an interesting question. Is that criticism reconcilable with my earlier criticism of the allegory of the aviary? Like uh, I argued earlier that with the aviary, I would be gaining evidence that all ravens are black. So if there were, say, an infinite number of birds in there, and I cover my eyes whenever there's a black one and don't cover my eyes when there's a non-black one, does that mean I am not, in fact, gaining evidence that all ravens are black? That's an interesting point, sort of saying, like, both can't necessarily... Like, it would work on a, as a standalone way of saying what the problem is or a way of actually using the finite amount as evidence. Well, I guess what I'm saying is that there seems to be a meta-paradox here where... 
uh, both criticisms that we've brought up both seem to pretty suitably uh, disprove uh, the paradox of the ravens, but can they both be true at once? So assuming one exists, the other, assuming that the fi- infinite theory of like things that are non-raven exists, and that's the real reason, or that's the real problem with the paradox, then the aviary one doesn't necessarily work because the evidence you're collecting isn't evidence at all. Exactly. I suppose that perhaps we should just leave that for the listener to decide. This has been a very nice and productive conversation on some intense uh, philosophical epistemology. Let me shake your hand for that. I love you too, Matt. Now for our third and final segment of this episode, I suppose that we can talk about metapolitics. And uh, Matt, uh, could you define metapolitics for our listeners just so that we're all on the same page? So it's basically the politics of politics or in a way we're going to be analyzing, us specifically are going to be analyzing sort of how political affiliation is measured. I think that sums it up. We won't be talking about what categories we fall into, but rather we'll talk about what's the best way to divide up those categories. What's the best way to represent political theories and their relationships to each other? To start off, we'll be looking at, uh, many of you may have heard of this one, the political compass. And then perhaps uh, once we discuss that, we'll move on to a slightly lesser known breakdown called eight values. All right, so to start off, will explain this um, intriguing way of breaking down politics called the political compass. And the political compass is essentially a way of categorizing people's political views based on two spectra, uh, which therefore uh, on two axes makes a graph. Matt, can you explain uh, what the first spectrum is on left and right? So left and right is about economic views. Um, sort of how the government should interact with markets, how markets should interact with the government. And the up and down axis would be social control, which is how much government should have control over individuals' uh, behavior and personal life and way that they live uh, their life. So my thoughts on this is I like this more than the classic left-right spectrum because often in the news and media and in our own uh, terminology, we break down politics into a one-dimensional spectrum with the left-wing usually being uh, more liberal with the right-wing being more conservative. However, uh, what I like about the political compass is that it points out that that's sort of a, a false dichotomy that just because someone is a capitalist doesn't necessarily mean that they are socially conservative. Take, for example, uh, the LGBT community. Uh, Often the stereotype is that uh, capitalists are anti-LGBT, but the political compass points out that that's not necessarily true. Those in the top right quadrant, the uh, lesser economic control, greater social control might be, but those in the economic freedom with social freedom uh, might not be. What are your thoughts? Uh, I I really agree with that. Sort of, I mean, I personally know a lot of people who don't agree with higher taxes and certain tax policies, but will also say like, "But you still need to help poor people." They think of it as more as a of a personal 
duty to humanity to help and they'll like volunteer their time helping but they don't see it as a government regulated thing so in terms of maybe markets in the economy they wouldn't see it as corporations need to have higher taxes or should be taxed in certain ways just to help just to increase taxes that will go to social like welfare projects and other things but at the same time they aren't saying you they're not unjust in their humanitarian views where they're saying you just leave people on the side of the road and you don't help your brother like do that sort of thing mm -hmm. i think it really fosters a discussion like it it's easy to lump together people you disagree with into a one-dimensional enemy and say oh there's uh, me the good guys and you the bad guys but the political compass sort of um, breaks it up and says well actually no the people you oppose are uh, multifaceted and aren't necessarily all uh, uniform on that end. And even within their own, their own quadrants, there's still a greater scale than how we normally would say someone, oh, they're moderate left or far left, moderate right, far right. I mean, it's basically a five-point scale of middle, somewhat, and then vary to each side. Unlike this, where you could look at someone and sure, they're in the same quadrant as you, but you could be closer to center by far and they could be all the way in the corner. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. For example, someone who's a little bit to the left and a little bit up, uh, those are similar, for example, to the policies of the Baltic countries like Norway, Denmark, Sweden, while, say, Stalinist Russia is highly to the left and highly up. And so, obviously, Norway and uh, communist USSR are two very different political theories, but like you said, they are nonetheless in the same quadrant. So it's less of a label and more of a degree of extent to which you fall into each category. This sort of leaves us with the question of why do we have a one-dimensional spectrum in our normal political speech to begin with? Uh, well, I think the reason why the one-dimensional spectrum developed has to do with old France. Uh, Post-French Revolution, after uh, the king was overthrown, the uh, would-be republic uh, began to organize itself so that the wealthy elite extremists would sit on the right side of his uh, sort of gathering uh, room, while the people who represented the poor masses would sit on the far left. And because they didn't want them to break up into fistfights, um, they would put the centrists in the center as sort of a physical buffer. And so back then... Uh, it was more or less fair to say that the wealthy elite all sort of shared the same sum total of views, while the poor masses also tend to uh, share the, the same sum total of views. And so that spectrum uh, sort of developed into modern day. Um, however, there are certain re reasons why I don't think that that's relevant anymore, the first of which is the development of the middle class over the centuries. For example, the middle class... Uh, obviously don't all share the same political views. And so to lump them all together as centrists isn't really fair. Do you have any other uh, reasons why the spectrum is not relevant anymore? Uh, well, I mean, there are more complex social issues now at the time uh, than there were there here in the simple left-right. It is one-dimensional, as you said, it was brought up by class and sort of the economic um, back and forth or... Uh, juxtaposition between the two classes but now there are social issues to encounter and you can't necessarily say that social issue is left and that social issue is right and we're looking at a different 
yeah, that's really where the whole next axis comes in with the political compass. It mm -hmm. takes it into account these social issues and government interference in those social issues. Yeah, I, and I also think it's fair to say uh, the middle to lower class don't all have the same views on the same issues uh, like they did in uh, old France. Uh, two people of low socioeconomic statuses could have two very different um, uh, proposed solutions for uh, ending wealth inequality in America. And same goes uh, for people of high socioeconomic status. They are no longer uniform like they were 200, 200 plus years ago. So with that in mind, let's move on to uh, a slightly different way of breaking down politics. This one's called Eight Values, and it divides it not on two spectra, but four spectra. So do you want to uh, tell us a little bit about that, Matt? Uh, it's a, The eight values test specifically is a 70-question test, and it has four axes, societal, civil, diplomatic, and economic. I'm intrigued. Can you tell me what those uh, four spectra practically mean? Uh, the economic one really looks at whether you are in favor of equality, sort of like equal opportunity to jump into the markets and uh, breaking down of, say, monopolies and government intervention in the economy, or whether you think the market should be as free as possible, sort of the old laissez-faire uh, viewpoints that government should have zero intervention in the markets. Although I would add the asterisk that um, on the equality side of the spectrum, it's not necessarily equal opportunity because it could be interpreted to mean equal outcome. But of course, uh, that gets a little bit into actual politics. But for now, we're just discussing meta politics. And so would you um, do you think it's fair to say that this spectrum is analogous to the left right axis in the political compass, or at least roughly close to it? No, I think it's practically the same general idea of being economically left and right. All right. So what's the next one? The next one is a diplomatic axis. It looks at basically your nationalist views versus your view of your country in terms of the world, how intertwined you think your country should be with the world, and how you think your country should interact with the world through more diplomatic means, through more military power means, and basically the level of interaction in which you interfere in other world affairs. And I know a fact that the eight values test used to have this spectrum be might on one side and peace on the other, but they've since changed it to be nation on one side and world on the other side. And I think part of that is to eliminate the bias of the speaker because the term might uh, obviously has a bit of a connotation to it. And the creator of this uh, wanted to be as objective as possible. So in short, would you say it's fair to say it comes down to the question, should a nation prioritize the needs of its own citizens or should it pr prioritize its the needs of humanity as a whole? Do you think that's what this spectrum's getting at? I think that's a point on the spectrum, but not necessarily the entirety of that exact axis. I feel like there's also more niche things about participation and how about not just the level of participation, but how we should participate. Mm, like the, um, the military industrial complex, would that be on this spectrum? Yeah, that seems like more of a, another point that would fall under this spectrum. All right, let's move on to the third one. The third axis is uh, civil issues, which is how much should the government control uh, citizens' personal lives? And this um, would involve things like uh, the LGBT community 
and probably things like uh, sexual behaviors and uh, what sexual behaviors are allowed or what the government would deem indecent and situations such as these. I'm guessing gun laws would also fall under this spectrum um, and probably uh, topics such as abortion. Really just sort of the rights of the people, right? Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. And then this also sort of correlates with the political compass. Wouldn't you say, Scott, with the, Very much. the second axis of the political compass? Yeah, I definitely think it's the analog of the up-down axis. In fact, I, the political compass defines down as libertarian and up as authoritarian. And uh, probably not by coincidence, eight values defines this spectrum with liberty on one side and authority on the other side. So the fourth and final spectrum is about tradition versus progress, which is called the societal axis. Uh, generally, it talks about should the government appeal to traditions such as religious values or should it not be bound by that, uh, for example, in the pursuit of science. And I suppose this would involve things like should uh, public schools be required to pray in school or should they not? That would probably be on that on this spectrum. And things like teaching evolution, maybe? Mm, yes. Uh, whether uh, biblical uh, creationism should be incorporated in public schools or should it not. And if I believe, if I remember correctly, um, there was a certain question on the test that asked about whether or not public funding should go to research or public research was more important than... Oh, uh, yeah. Should the government issue... Uh, grants towards genuine scientific research, or should it be that be privatized? Yeah. Uh, so these are all very good discussions for another time. Uh, but for now, let's just talk about the breakdown itself. Uh, Matt, how do you think the eight values system compares to the com political compass? Do you think the two extra axes are necessary, or do you think it complicates it too much? I feel like the diplomatic axis is necessary because, I mean, when you look at just whether it's a libertarian or authoritarian view of the it's that's a within nation sort of ideal about the rights of the people within the nation but it's important to also think of international policy and how one might believe i mean with the, such a globalized world how one might believe their country should take a role in the globalization of the world i definitely agree for example um a conservative person might say that the government ought to stay out of social issues, but might also um, be in favor of funding the military. Uh, for example, the nationalist sentiment that was going on during the Cold War, which is that America has an obligation to share its values and institute its values of freedom uh, towards other countries. And personally, I think the fourth uh, spectrum is very important because uh, the United States has a history of favoring uh, the religion of Christianity over uh, other religions and non-religion. For example, I think the uh, population of unaffiliated or non-religious people is something like 20% in America, but the amount of unaffiliated uh, congressmen is something like 1%. So I think bringing up that conversation is very important and that conversation is brought up with this spectrum i i to somewhat of an extent disagree with you that it should be its own spectrum i agree that the issues should be represented when one is taking into account one's sort of measured values but i i actually think that a lot of what the questions were asking 
either fell into the economic axis or the civil axis like one's a one's beliefs and how that should affect and what how free they should be to sort of exert those beliefs and how free others should be to maybe wean away from tradition i'd also like what i said earlier about the grants question grants to like public grants to scientific um inquiry and how that's more of an economic issue about whether markets or the government should focus on on scientific research for economic growth or potential other uses of such research hmm, i see your point i guess my counterpoint would be uh, the fourth spectrum is also helpful for distinguishing between communism and fascism. For example, communism and fascism are both highly authoritarian on the third one, uh, fairly nation-centric on the diplomatic and heavy economic control on the first axis. But what really separates them is that while fascism, uh, take for example Mussolini's fascism, appeals to classic traditions saying like this is the way it should be, this is the way it always has been, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, communism, it tends to be, or I think communism necessarily is atheistic and is more based on progress and change and forward thinking. And so without that spectrum, it's kind of hard to distinguish communism and fascism, despite being very different fundamental philosophies. I could see that, especially with like the five-year plans in, in communism at the time sort of being a attempt to increase progress via the state's control that would make sense and furthermore the difference mm -hmm. and furthermore like the great leap forward sounds like a very progress oriented um plan while uh fascism is a hyper conservative movement oh yeah there's also an important point that uh, the first axis sort of asks the question is it better to have equal opportunities or equal outcomes and fascism as far as i'm aware would answer neither it's better that some people have better opportunities and better outcomes, and that other people, uh, such as in uh, Hitler's Third Reich, have neither equal opportunities or equal outcomes. And thus the fourth uh, spectrum, I think, is necessary here. All right, with that in mind, do you have any closing remarks on this issue? Anything else you want to bring up? Uh, I think, personally, uh, when I take these two tests, a, a big thing is sort of the complexity of the questions or how they could be interpreted and how one's interpretation could greatly change one's answer to the question. And I feel as though a problem with the tests is some questions can be, like no question wants to be too extremist or else one might not pick it, but because of the lack of extremeness in certain answers, it could, if it's not on a scale set, I'm thinking more of like the political topology quiz on this one which we didn't go over, but I feel as though the questions were very moderate in a sense, though they were, they could have opposing sides. And this moderate level is what could lead to maybe a confusion of where one is supposed to be placed in terms of affiliation. Mm, do you mean like by trying to be unbiased, it ironically pushes you towards neutrality? Is that what you're saying? I mean, more in a way where it's trying not to be an extreme version of the question where it's not saying like, oh, the government should have no control over economic issues. So then it will say the government should lessen its current control on economic issues. And to the, ex the extent to which one may want that could be different because someone may say yes to that and think that the government should have no control. And some may say yes to that 
and think that maybe it's just a bit of the government's control and economic issues that should be subdued based on its current level. I suppose I see your point. And a closing remark that I'd like to add is maybe uh, another axis that might be helpful for the political compass is big companies or small companies. For example, if you compare the presidencies of Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, they both favored the generally authoritarian side of the spectrum on social issues. For example, Woodrow Wilson uh, was very racist and believed in uh, Jim Crow laws and so on and so forth. And so they're both on the uh, upper authoritarian uh, quadrants. And they also both favored uh, government control over the economy. So that puts them generally in the upper left quadrant. But the key difference between them is that Theodore Roosevelt believed in policies that would incentivize big companies, sort of allow monopolies to exist, but sort of tame them with government control. While in contrast, Woodrow Wilson favored policies that would break up big businesses and prefer uh, only small businesses and local businesses um, to incentivize competition. And so on the political compass, it seems they'd be in generally the same spot. But if we turn it into this political cube uh, with three spectra, you can see that they're very different. How do you, what would you suggest as a sort of a third spectra then? I mean, we looked at a four axis, eight values quiz and the two axis political compass, but wouldn't, wouldn't each of the sort of axes of say the political compass need their own thing whether it's big business or small business would be like its own third axis but then also maybe the type of libertarianism versus authoritarian view man i suppose you're right i guess the beauty of these um, alternative ways of viewing politics is not really to end the discussion but to start the discussion not to show some perfect way of breaking up political beliefs but rather to just point out that the one-dimensional spectrum just how uh just just how simplistic it can be because like hypothetically we could just break these down into dozens and dozens of spectra and still not quite um pick out all the nuanced views of all the politicians and social activists that have existed over the years yeah that makes sense sort of like across time how political ideas change and each one has their own little niche thing and i think that just about wraps up our conversation on the political compass and eight values all that sort of political measurement all that meta politics <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this beautiful omakase for your mind i'm scott and i'm matt and this has been the, the phantasmagorical think tank Thank you to the Free Music Archive for its soundbite of the President's March. Our theme music is Seasons by DJAG. Thank you to DJAG.